Welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. My name is Matthew Dawkins, and I am joined by my co-host, Dixie Cochran. Hello there. And Eddie Webb. Hello, brother. Oh no, don't bring it to the podcast. Brother Jack. <laughs> well, now that that's uh, out of the way, enough of this gay banter. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, our, our uh, topic of discussion today isn't wrestling. It's actually Chicago by Night, because Chicago by Night is, after all, now available to buy in stores, uh, online, pretty much anywhere that sells RPGs, uh, including Studio 2, IPR, uh, Drive Through RPG. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's a very exciting thing, isn't it? Yay! Absolutely. I'm so excited about Chicago. Uh, now, before we get into the deep dive, I'm sure we'll do lots of preambling tangents, uh, but one thing I wanted to say, and this is because this is something I've found as a shopper myself, uh, your game store or bookstore may not immediately find Chicago by Night on their distribution list. They may type it into their computer and not find it there. Uh for now, it seems that for some retailers, it's on the special order list with companies like Asmodee, if you're in the UK. Uh, so they have to order it to distribute it. But if you do that, then it will just uh, go on to the regular order list with time. So uh, that helps us in the long run. Uh, so do make that point to any uh, retailer that you're trying to shop with that you, they just need to get in touch with their distributor. And they will be able to order Chicago by Night, traditionally printed. Won't be coming from Drive Through RPG, and yeah, you'll be able to get yourself a uh, good, lovely bound copy of Chicago by Night for V five. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to do that as a kind of headline because right. it is big news, and mm -hmm. so I didn't want it to be any kind of uh, prohibition to people actually picking it up if they go into their game store and get told, "Nope, we don't have any sign of Chicago here." Right. No signs. I mean, to kind of Chicago disappeared that. off the map. Yeah, there's a big yeah. black hole in Illinois. Right. <laughs> um, but and to kind of build on that, um, uh, lots of times uh, we get asked because we do have so many different ways of of buying our products. Uh, what's the best way to buy it to support Onyx Path Publishing? And in this case, you know, it is trying to get it through your stores if possible. Because while we have had other books in distribution in stores in the past, Chicago is definitely one that we really want to make sure people see and get access to. Um, so going to your, your store and saying, hey, I really want to get a copy of Chicago by Night, um, then they'll generally we'll probably order maybe a couple more besides the one you want, which gets more of them in stores. People see it more and it just really helps us immensely because we want to make sure that this process of getting it in stores is really, really beneficial. So definitely this is a good way to support us. I completely agree. And, uh, yeah, I think even you, we could even say, while there are, of course, lots of V5 books we would love to make, uh, a lot is uh, hinging on the success of Chicago by Night and Cults of the Blood Gods. Mm. Uh, so if you know someone or if, if your gaming group likes V5 or likes what Onyx Path puts out, then their purchases genuinely do help inform us uh, how many more books in this line we should be dedicating our time to. Uh, so yeah um, do certainly order it and you know if you contact me on matthewdawkins.com I know we usually save that to the end we can probably arrange something in terms of signing it uh, just you know some paid postage or something of that ilk I'm sure we can mm -hmm. sort that out so that's, that's a nice way of starting but before we get back into Chicago let's talk more generally Dixie how are you doing? 
<laughs> I'm doing okay. I'm hanging out. Just got a new cat. She's pretty great. Does the cat have a name? Uh, yes, I think we're going to call her Wednesday. Nice. Ooh. Is she full of woe? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just, there's there's those names like from pop culture that you like, but that you would never, or like I, I personally wouldn't give like a kid that you can give a pet instead. Right. And being, you know, kind of a weird gothy person. I've always liked names what? like Wednesday and Lydia and stuff like that because of <laughs> various movies. And uh, she's not quite a Morticia because like she's not like a big black cat. She's like a little dainty tabby cat. Mm. But I thought Wednesday was a good kind of all around name. You know, it, it kind of hits the American Gods fandom a little bit. And then it hits the, the Adams family. And, you know, she's a little tiny dainty girl. And Wednesday is, you know, evil, but also a tiny, a tiny dainty girl. <laughs> I do hope that the cat does not set anything on fire, though. Cats have been known, especially if they're jumping around on kitchen uh, cabinets, which, of course, they shouldn't be allowed to do. Uh, Cats on kitchen worktops, a big no-no in my house. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's unlikely to happen. No, I was about to say it's unlikely to happen uh, because we don't have a cat. And if there was a cat on a kitchen worktop, it wouldn't be ours. It would be one, a stray that's, uh, or a neighbor's cat that somehow snuck in through a window, which did happen once. uh, Much to (laughs) my consternation, just thought, where the hell did this cat come from? And then, as I just, I, I wasn't threatening the cat. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't wielding a big stick or anything. Uh, I went after the cat, tried to pick it up to or remove it from the house, and instead it dove straight for an upstairs window. And uh, it was upstairs when I found it, and uh, ended up walking along the windowsill outside, and then getting stuck on the drain pipe uh, to the side of our upstairs windows. So oh, no. it just sat there. It didn't want to come back in, and it didn't want to go down. So it just sat there for a long time until someone came along with a ladder. Because cats are silly sometimes. Cats are silly sometimes. That's yeah. very true. Mm. Um, otherwise, Eddie, how are you? Uh, I'm doing okay. Um, I'm planning my next tattoo next week. That's going to be fun. I'm getting uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles to, to continue my Sherlock Holmes theme on my arm, so... Did you decide to go for the same arm or a different arm? Um, I decided the same arm. I'm getting a different artist. Um, uh, the, the artist I'm going with is, has more kind of uh, um, it's a stronger uh, anatomy style. Um, you know, there's a lot of like three dimensional looking art. Um, but we talked about it and we were debating about which arm to mix the styles. And he actually is going to do a, a, a border around it that pulls elements from the other tattoos. So that way there's more of a kind of a transition between the pieces. Cool. So, yeah, I'm excited to see how it's, he also does a lot of black and white work, but it's a black dog in the story, so I think that should work really well, actually. Yeah, that'll be awesome. So I'm really excited about that. I'll see mm. Matthew, what about you? How are you doing? Oh, I'm tickety boo. I think every single time there's something shit going on, I say tickety boo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> through clenched teeth. Uh, it's tickety shit. Tickety <laughs> shit. Shittity boo. It's uh, the se- the less popular sequel to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang or Shitty Chitty Bang. Bang. <laughs> um, I uh, yeah, it's been an interesting time. Uh, there's been a lot of laughs this week, the time of recording, and a lot of uh, again grimaces and clenched teeth, just because some of the 
bullshit you read online sometimes and mm-hmm. say so I, I would be lying if i said that it hadn't been on my mind a little but it's also been quite quite fun actually uh fighting back against said bullshit uh i'll be i'll remain vague on the path cast because this is probably not the kind of thing listeners want to hear about but uh when we go through our various social medias at the end i'm sure people will be able to find these things all by themselves uh but yeah it's uh, the biggest pain to be honest of being wrapped up in social media drama is it's a big distraction from work and there's yep. always yep. a lot of work to do and uh, certainly not enough time to engage in Twitter wars. But sometimes you kind of have to... Um, when, when it comes crashing down and it hurts inside, Eddie, uh, you've got to be a man it don't help to hide as the Hulk Hogan <laughs> theme tune I don't know goes. what's happening. Um, <laughs> if you hurt what my friends alluding to, and, and then you hurt my act- pride... You've got to be a man. You got to what is it? Stand up inside. I am a real American. Fight for the rights of every man. I am a real American. Fight for what's right. Fight for your life. You're not even American. Well, that's the curious thing. At least one person online is convinced that I am. That I am an American who puts on a British accent. Uh, it's the most curious thing. It's one of the weirdest things I've ever been accused of. Uh, the other- where where in America do you supposedly live then? Uh, Alabama. Oh no! Uh, <laughs> Why uh, Alabama? Uh, I went for Alabama because I just thought it was one of the most ridiculous states in general. Uh, sorry, listeners <laughs> from Alabama, um, but no, a, a ridiculous state. Is it Danielle from Alabama? Uh, a ridiculous state for me to be from. Um, but uh, the. No, the, the accusation that was leveled at me was that not only was I an American affecting a British accent to to sound more cultured or something like that, but uh, it was described as an Atlantic accent, uh, which uh, not, I, I think puts I mean, me I've, in Bermuda. I've, I've I've heard you do an Atlantic accent. What is an but like what is an Atlantic accent? Please educate me. Usually, people say that. Um, they're like referring to the like old movie accents. There's like a couple terms right. for it, mm-hmm. and one of them is Atlantic. So like that that weird accent that everyone in movies had in the 40s mm-hmm. that, kind that of, isn't you know, a real accent. If you think like the newsreels, like you know uh, War at Sea, you know you know that kind of yeah very stilted, almost kind of a little bit of Bostonian vibe in there. Yeah. yeah. Oh god, which is an accent how... that you occasionally put on for like they came from. Right. Oh yeah, if I'm doing the, the news just in kind of thing. Yep. Uh, that's but, exactly that it. accent. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay, so that's an Atlantic accent. Well, I don't sound like that. So yeah. I mean, uh, ultimately what it comes down to, I've mentioned before on the podcast, um sad story time. I'll get the violin sound effects out. That when I was at school, <laughs> uh, I I was uh, bullied constantly for my voice for having a uh, an accent that other children didn't enjoy so it's very odd now uh, when i've not had anything like this happen for the last i don't know 10 years of my life probably um Mm. for it to emerge again that someone first of all makes the accusation that i am putting on a false accent but also tries to mock me for it. it it puts into contrast or not contrast it puts into perspective how 
I guess, fruitless and and pointless such mockery was when I was a child, and despite the fact I was hurt a great deal by it back then, because you are, you know, you get hurt by any mockery, no matter how ridiculous. As an adult, when it gets level that you just think, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, get a life, move on. And... Um, <laughs> And yeah, it's it's very school school type stuff, the kind of things that uh, fly around uh, online. And so yeah, best you can do is make a plain statement about the facts of the matter, and then move on. And use block prolifically. Speaking of, of silly things online, um, it, certain silly things like, for example, cutting wrestling promos against each other in the middle of the workday. Oh my Twitter. god, y'all. <laughs> Anybody that has not gone on Twitter and seen Eddie and Matthew's wrestling promos <laughs> against each other, especially the one in which Matthew has on a wig and face paint. <laughs> what do you mean a wig? That was my natural hair. Um... <laughs> please, please go look at them because they are hilarious and amazing. So yeah, if I had known that Twitter drama was going to come up the day after that, I probably wouldn't have spent so much time doing wrestling promos the day before. Um, but that No, uh, so yeah, I did a um, first name macho, last name man, yeah, uh, promo, and Eddie responded with a Ric Flair promo, lots of wooing. Mm-hmm. And when he did that, I just thought, right, I'm going to have to go nuclear. And so I dashed <laughs> off, grabbed makeup I've not used in many a year, and within five minutes, and I think you can tell it didn't take long, uh, <laughs> I, I, had, I had the Ultimate Warrior face mask painted and was there in my study recording Ultimate Warrior promos uh, to the extent that for the rest of the day I'd lost my voice because it takes a lot out of you to go, Anywhere I will meet you at the Toronto Sky. I know, and all that. It's, um... I just wonder what your neighbors thought if anybody was home heard you just yelling, well, yelling like that. What uh, one of my neighbors plays music with heavy bass, very loud in the morning. So fuck them. Oh. Um... <laughs> and the other one. You heard it here first, yeah. folks. And, and the other... fuck Matthew's neighbors. And the other one's mostly deaf. So. Um... Good for him. Lucky him. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Again, the many advantages of being mostly deaf. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Uh, so now that we've done our tangents, Chicago. <laughs> that is a hard segue. Wow. Uh, okay, let's find a better way of doing it. Y'all, no, no, y'all no. can connect wrestling to Chicago somehow. Come on. There's there's, there's got to be a wrestler from Chicago that y'all can Same talk point. about. Um. But yes, and uh, one of the first pay-per-views I ever watched was recorded at the Rosamont Horizon, which is uh, just outside of Chicago. I think that's one of the Survivor Series, maybe 1990, 1989. Fact-check me, people. And having stayed in Rosemont when I went to the Chicago Comic Con, I saw the Rosemont Horizon just on the other side of the road. I thought, oh, ah, nice. there you go. Um, there's a odd connection. But uh, that is, again, very weak as far as connections go. Chicago by night. <laughs> we'll take it. Yeah, well, um, we mentioned The Irishman a few episodes ago. Stephen Graham is, is in that, and he's a fantastic actor. Mm-hmm. But And he plays Al Capone in Boardwalk Empire. Uh, uh-huh. And he's basically playing Al Capone 
in The Irishman as well. Uh, he it, it's still a very good performance, but he kind of walks on and he's going, "Hey, oh, I'm Al Capone, hey," and it's <laughs> wait, he just says that the Irishman. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, not not exactly, but it's I, I, I struggled to disconnect one role from the from the other. Watching from Boardwalk Empire to The Irishman. So speaking of Al Capone, Chicago by Night. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Um, so we did it. We did it. Yeah, <laughs> we did a segue. Yeah. Uh, now now for the deep dive. Um, I'm so proud of us, <laughs> Eddie. Tell us a little about the history of Chicago by Night. Uh, sure. Can we call it a deep dish dive? Ooh, Ooh nice. we can now. Nice. Yeah, it's definitely. Even though, as our Chicago friends have told us, no way from Chicago actually eats deep dish. Right. It's a tourist thing. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so uh, Chicago by night. For those of you who don't know, actually, has Chicago has an interesting history in Vampire the Masquerade. Um, it's not the very first stage to be detailed in uh, Masquerade. That would have been um, uh, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name already. Gary, Gary, Indiana, which is outside of Chicago. Um, but then uh, it was in one of, I think it was the first edition book, um, kind of a little detail of here's a city you can start with. And then there's references to the big city, Chicago, where the big Camarilla stuff happens. Um, and so there was a natural kind of follow-on to do a, a city book of Chicago by night. Uh, so that was the, it was the first standalone by night book. And that's where the by night construction kind of came from, was from Chicago by night. And what's interesting is that a lot of what went into Chicago by Night initially really set the, the template for following books. Um, like the idea of, of the sheriff as a position, for example, um, it's because there was a character in there, Balthazar, whose nickname was Sheriff because he was an old Confederate soldier. And his job was to act as the enforcer for the prince. And over books, there's this understanding that there is a position called sheriff that Balthazar holds. Um, and the idea of things like coterie charts, where how the characters relate to each other, there's pictures with the arrows that show you how the relationships are, that also started in Chicago by night. So a lot of Chicago kind of set the standard for how we view Vampire the Masquerade in general, really. Um, and then, well, there's a second edition of the book, which I think is the only binary book to get a new edition, a new version of it, where they actually kind of moved the politics forward to a degree. Uh, and there was the war with lupines and characters that were in the first book were killed in the second book. Um, you know, there was a different, there was no prince in power or there was a prince in power before. And, and the idea that, oh, this city changes and evolves. But I think one of the reasons why Chicago is probably one of the more popular vampire, the masquerade cities is because it is a nice archetypal North American city. Um, there's a lot going on in Chicago. Chicago has its own mood and flavor. Certainly it can't, you can't go to Chicago and mistake it for New York or LA, but New York and LA are so kind of entrenched in popular culture that People feel like there's a certain amount of, well, I have to live up to presenting an accurate and authentic New York, where Chicago, there's not as much pop culture density around it. So you can do New York-ish things in Chicago, LA-ish things in Chicago, and they fit and they work in there. Um, so it's 
a nice way for people who aren't familiar with with America or aren't familiar with big cities can get that big city feel and have a nice big book for it. And and, and we say Chicago, people have a, enough of an understanding of Chicago to know generally what it's like. But there's not this thing of, well, it must be exactly this and these streets must go exactly. You can still kind of fudge it if you're not from the area and still get something that feels generally like a Chicago-like experience. So I think it's a good intersection and sweet spot of how people perceive the city and what you can actually do with the game and make it kind of a sandboxy style game. And uh, random trivia moment. Unfortunately, we don't have the piano in the background uh, like we did <laughs> during midwinter. Um, you weren't there for this panel, Dixie, but when we did the Chicago by Night panel at midwinter, we occasionally broke off into random trivia and as if by complete coincidence, and it was a complete coincidence, someone started playing the piano whenever we did the trivia moments. So it was quite nice. Um, yeah, later on, I when mean, the piano started, we would just stop and start adding trivia in because obviously that was the trivia moment now. Yeah. I mean, you have edit power over this episode. You could put piano music underneath the trivia segment. I could, but we're recording this the day before it goes out, and I really don't have that much energy. Where's your dedication, man? Uh, I left it with my Ultimate Warrior <laughs> promo on Tuesday. Um... <laughs> So you got to put on makeup to be dedicated. I, I do actually, and a wig. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, so random Chicago by Night trivia. Uh, Eddie said this one before. I know uh, is that uh, part of the reason for the massacre of Kindred in Under a Blood Red Moon, which goes between Chicago by Night first edition and second edition is notably the kindred that get massacred. Uh, so mm. as well as Prince Lodin, whose death serves as a plot device, or does he die as V5 makes out, um, there's a lot of other characters that die who were quite popular in Chicago by Night First Edition. Uh, and the reason for a lot of their deaths is because they're characters from another book. And mm. uh, that book is The Jungle, uh, it's a 1906 novel by Upton Sinclair <laughs> uh, set in Chicago. Uh, it, and it's basically a novel about uh, the exploited lives of migrants uh, living in Chicago mm. at the turn of the 20th century. And for whatever reason, and I don't know, I've never asked the right person this, a lot of the characters from that novel end up as vampires in Chicago by Night First Edition, with no connection to the novel, because the novel's a fiction. And uh, unsurprisingly, by the time Second Edition comes around, it's as if someone noticed at White Wolf uh, <laughs> that these characters all appeared in a novel a hundred years, well, ninety years earlier, and like a really, really famous novel that they make you read in high school. Yeah, right. Like it's not just like some little side thing. It's like it's like if they named them after characters from Romeo and Juliet or nineteen eighty four. Like it's a book you read uh, in school. And uh, yeah, so those kindred got mostly all wiped out. In fact, they all did, and I just brought some back for V five. Um, but with random trivia out of the way. Uh, and on the subject of, I guess, city settings, I know it's something we've discussed in the past, Dixie, but uh, your groups have already been that keen on using like city sourcebooks, have they? Or, or not city sourcebooks as written? I mean... Uh, yeah, not not so much. I mean, for first of all, I, we played a long campaign that took place in Raleigh where I was living, and there wasn't a Raleigh by night, I don't think. <laughs> um wasn't wasn't quite big enough for that so we like you know that one we just kind of made up on our own now that said i know that my my storyteller gm for many years did a lot of prep work when we weren't there 
So I don't know what all he used all the time. So it's possible he was pulling Metaplot and other things straight from, you know, whatever by night. And I just wasn't aware because uh, I was never like I didn't have money to buy all those books back in the day. <laughs> I was a, you know, poor teenager. Um, and that wasn't what I saved my money for. I saved my money for like clothes and going out with friends and things. Um, so like it's quite possible he pulled a lot of stuff from that and I just am completely unaware like I have no idea um but we definitely did play our our main long-running game that I did in high school and a little bit after it was set in Raleigh just because we all knew downtown Raleigh because that's where we hung yeah. out um so it made it easy for us to be like you know oh it's the college campus so like we- weirdly enough the NC State campus there in Raleigh was where the main vampire LARP took place for a long time <laughs> So it was possible to actually walk around and see people (laughs) dressed up as vampires (laughs) in that area during that time period. It's, uh, well, it's funny you should mention the fact that, um, you know, you may well have pulled things, or the GM may well have pulled things from Chicago by Night without you knowing. Because one of the big objectives of V5 Chicago by Night was to make it universal. Uh, and mm-hmm. in, a, in a sense, we may have even painted ourselves into a bit of a corner with this because we made Chicago by Night so universal, uh, one could argue that a subsequent city sourcebook would be less useful. But, you know, I'm sure we'd have come up with new <laughs> ideas. Um, but the point being that there are always going to be fans who love city sourcebooks uh, that really delve into the depths of that city and how the characters presented in it connect to that city. But there are other people who really don't want to run a game in Chicago, just as they didn't right. want to run a game in Milwaukee or Cairo or New York or anywhere else there was a city source book but what Chicago by Night does for V5 is it doesn't just provide Kindred with enough nebulous connection to Chicago that you could put them anywhere it also has entire city building systems in the book uh, Mm -hmm. written by Mike Tomasek uh, the homesteading system, as it's called, uh, where we go into in great detail how Chicago is set up as a metropolis, but we also go into its building blocks and how you can use similar kind of uh, systems connected to them, like this place is easier to feed in, this place is a greater masquerade breach, this kind of random encounter is more likely to happen to you here than here. You could do that in your city, whether that's, um, you know, London, Portland, or Paris. Uh, or Raleigh, or North Carolina. Raleigh, North Carolina. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was very important to us that in the V5 edition, it was something that you could use regardless of where you set your game. And the other, the previous city source books, while they could be used like that by an imaginative storyteller and players, were never really signposted as such. Uh, whereas we've made no bones about the fact that we want as many people using this book as possible. Right. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that was always a plan. Yeah. And I think it was a good plan because, um, like you said, there are people who really want to dig into how a city works, but also there are people who will look at a book and maybe full of great stuff, but they'll go, I don't want to run a game in Chicago. I don't want to run a game in New Orleans, what have you. So they just skip over these books. Um, and so being able yeah. to make it more clear to people that this Chicago is the example that we're using to show you how you can make your own Vampire the Masquerade City is a really good direction to take it. Well, that's that's the thing too, is like all the characters and lore sheets and everything are useful no matter where you are. Mm-hmm. Like, 
just because the meta plot of the game says that these characters live in Chicago, like, you know, Kevin Jackson can be prince of whatever freaking city you want to put him in if you mm-hmm. really want to. Like, it won't hurt the character if he doesn't live in Chicago. So if you want to do, you know, Miami by night or LA by night or whatever, like, you can install those characters in that city if you really want to. It's not going to hurt anything, and we will not be offended, I assure you. <laughs> Nobody will tell you you're right. playing it wrong. That's one of the things. Um, we actually we had an internal conversation with this recently. The idea that a lot of games there's value in having a book of an, a clear book of antagonists. Here's things that you can fight or talk to or interact with or what have you. Um, and uh, uh, this book, yeah, I actually checked before recording. Um, it has over 150 pages of just characters. So I mean, you know, that alone it's it could so be many. a book. It's so many characters. Right. You can take the character <laughs> chapter out and make it its own book if you wanted to. That, that's how many characters there are. And so if you're just going, oh, I need a – these characters run to a gangrel and just flip through and just grab a gangrel out of Shadow by Night and use it. And like, it's, like they said, you more or less drop them in. And that gives you a nice breadth of, of interesting characters to write to. And also not just vampires. Like there's even a couple other characters like Sullivan Dane is in Shadow by Night again. You know, the the, the – a notorious vampire hunter. So if you need a vampire hunter, then you can pull Sullivan Dane out and use him. So having all these ready-to-go characters for a storyteller is, is really, really useful. Yeah. You can pull out Balthazar and yeah, kill lot. him. That, because, that is, oh God, that is that why he is there. I mean, who who would have thought a confederate bruja? <laughs> what a revolutionary concept. Um, but, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> um, but on the subject of characters, and Sullivan Dane, random trivia, should be... Uh, should probably be around 75 years old now, I think, canonically. Mm-hmm. So he's really not in a good state to be hunting vampires. Uh, but damn it, he keeps going out there. And according to our Chicago by night, he's changed his tactics up somewhat and walks around strapped with explosives in case things go bad. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you know, life is getting a bit uh, dreary <laughs> when you can't just go out with the stake and uh, cross anymore. You've got to go strapped with Semtex. Um, but, <laughs> poor yeah, guy poor Solomon. Uh, on the subject of characters because you both worked on this book of course it wasn't just uh, me developing it we had a fantastic team of writers our editor Dixie uh, we had Hi. a brilliant league of artists and our art director Mike Cheney mm. um, the art is so good yeah, in Chicago uh, and Y'all. I mean I'm I'm no artist, but I do consider it the best-looking book we've ever made. And uh, a lot of that, of course, is down to the respective artists, but is hugely down to Mike. And I know I constantly sing his praises about this, and people are probably getting bored of that, but he deserves all of it. Uh, it is a, it's a wonder, this book, I think. It's the best-looking V5 book, that's for sure. Yeah, and I want, I want um, to dig into that a little bit, because... Um, uh, uh, first of all, this was an extremely hard book to land visually. Um, we had to follow in uh, the style of the original V5 books. Uh, we have to, you know, so there was a, a art standard that was set that wasn't our usual art standard. You know, all the other lines that we licensed from White Wolf, whether it was at Onyx Path or in previous years, Rich and Mike somehow had some hand in setting those standards. It's something that's completely new that Mike had to, to onboard with this whole new style. Combined with the fact that we had to blend in our process and how we contact artists and how we commission art into this previously established template. So if the book had just been decent looking, that would have been a huge accomplishment. But instead, 
like Matthew says, it is intensely amazing. Uh, I know um, there's a picture that we uh, have shared around a lot when we were in Kickstarter of of, of the prince. Um, and it's a picture of just a head and shot of him with the skyline kind of superimposed behind him, especially done by Mark Kelly. Um, and the way the lights of the skyscraper kind of goes by his eye, it really sells the fact that this character is a venture and this character is a prince, but does it in a new and exciting way that we hadn't really portrayed before. So it was a really good blend of what we do well as Onyx Path while also pushing our boundaries a bit more and doing something new and cool with it. But still, it's when you look at it, you recognize immediately, yes, this is a Vampire the Masquerade 5th edition book. It, it fits in with the other books, but it is definitely our own spin and our own take on it. And so to land that not only well, but to go beyond and make it such a beautiful, gorgeous book that people can look at art pieces and immediately understand what this game's all about is just breathtaking. And, and we definitely, I think, do not spend enough time talking about how amazing the art is in some of our books. I'm also really proud of it simply because like we, we, you know, like, like you said, we had to follow in the footsteps of the Camarilla and Arc and, and V5 core. Um, but we, we don't have a photographer on right. stuff. <laughs> like we don't really use photography in our books. It's just not something that we, you know, do as far as like getting photo shoots and costuming and all that. It's, it's a lot of work. Um, and I think we managed to do it through all, you know, just actual artwork, which is really, really cool. Because, you know, it was it was something that we we talked about a little bit and kind of went like, well, they use a lot of photos, they do this. And it's like, eh, that's not really something that we're going to do. So, but I think that all the artists nailed yeah, it. And we even got a little bit of help. Um, uh, probably, if you don't know the ins and outs, probably wouldn't notice this. But um, uh, the cover was actually done by uh, Tomas, who's actually uh, the art, art contact over mm-hmm. at Paradox. So Paradox actually contributed a piece of art for this book, the cover of the book, um, and helped us to really kind of nail that because it's it's it as a photograph as a base, but Tomas really put a lot of energy into tweaking it and modifying it. Um, so it, it, it's right. a nice blend of okay, here's a photograph, but it's very heavily manipulated, and then now we're moving into like Dixie says, our non-photographic art style. So there's a nice segue into that that Tomas has really nailed and made that cover look so good, along with the logo by Meredith. Yeah, he gave us some. Ad- yeah, he uh, gave us some advice on some of the, in- the mm-hmm. interior yeah. art too. Where you know we would have a piece, and he's like, "Okay, but like grunge it up yeah. a little, essentially, <laughs> because that's kind of the like V five style." Um, so it was, it was really cool collaborating with their art director, um, just because you know we have our style, they have their style, but we had to emulate their style. So having him be so helpful with it was really, really great. I think it was a, a good example of our partnership yeah, with them. Uh, and and to go back to the words, uh, the I did a similar thing with Karim at, uh, at Paradox. Karim Amar, who was the I guess uh, editor in chief when it came to the V five uh, books, uh, the V five core camera or anarch books uh, produced by paradox um he and i worked very closely together on polishing chicago by night uh, to the extent that we changed up the uh, structure of vampire biographies and stat blocks probably about three or four times and mm. uh eddie I, I think produced the first uh, concept for what the stat block should look like for V5 uh, right. vampires. And then, yeah, Karim and I were changing it backwards and forwards again. And sometimes, undoubtedly, that can get tiring, even frustrating, uh, when you've got to keep going back to the drawing board. But I can't deny that the finished result is excellent because it's the same thing that's going to be used for all subsequent books. Uh, it 
in that regard, mm-hmm. Chicago does act as a template, but as a book template, because we introduce things in this book that weren't in the incredibly law-heavy Camerata and Anarch books. Uh, we've introduced also mechanical stuff. So, Fall of London by Modiphius, Cults of the Blood Gods by us, and indeed any other books by any other companies are going to follow the same kind of uh, templates uh, when it comes to things like stat blocks, which may not sound important, but believe me, fans would notice if characters were laid out differently from book to book. Uh, it, it becomes important. And I was right. going to say, on the subject of characters, and I'm going to get back to that now, because I did mm. mention both of you worked on this, <laughs> and mm. poor Dixie had to edit the entire book, and it's a big book. <laughs> um, <laughs> do, That's what I do. do That's my job. Do the two of you have any favorite characters? Yes, and I have to remember their names. Because I don't uh, have the book in front of me. It's cheating to say Kevin Jackson, but you can say Kevin Jackson. No, um, mm-hmm. Erzuli is one of my favorites. I think she's amazing. Of the Blood um, Disco, uh, red number five. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, she's she's fucking fantastic. Um, who's the Nosferatu uh, guy? The, uh, also of red number five. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they are they are great, and I like their dynamic. Um, so they're they're a lot of fun together. Uh, let's see, there are so many cool characters. <laughs> there, there, there's like what, like five to ten for yeah, each clan. Some, some have uh, fewer than others, of course. I think the, the Gangrel have yeah. quite a low number, but that was deliberately on my part. I wanted to make it look like any Anarch Gangrel or most Anarch Gangrel just left the city. Um, right and the Camarilla holdouts are kind of seen as lapdogs by other Gangrel now that the main body of the clan has joined the Anarch movement. But yeah, I'm a big fan of Azzi and Erzuli and Francois Mamoualdi because because they are they're almost a prototype of what comes later in Cults of the Blood Gods. They are a faction within a Camarilla domain that doesn't really exist as Anarchs, doesn't really exist as Camarilla, could be considered autarky, but to be honest, they're just doing their own thing and could very well, just through cultural movement, uh, completely destroy the foundations of the Camarilla in Chicago. Yeah, I think I think that's why I like them. They are they're very like I don't know, there's kind of this, you know, punk little faction mm. of their own. I love everybody who's involved with Red Number 5. Um, I also really love yep. Baby Chorus. There's some interesting characters in Baby Chorus that were kind of fun to edit. Um, I'm so bad with names, I'm trying to remember, like, everybody. And, of course, I love yep. Kevin Jackson. Who does not love great. Kevin Jackson? Kevin Jackson's transformation from his initial introduction many, many years ago to now... Uh, is what we would call yeah. a glow up, <laughs> uh, because yeah, he is such a cool character, and keeping some of his background intact while giving him more gravitas and elevating him to the position that he's in now. Um, also, just it's 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 interesting. I think uh, Matthew was talking recently about how like if you look at his stats, they aren't amazing, but it's all about 
how he manipulates people and owes favors and talks to people and all of his connections. And that's a really interesting way to do a prince because I think a lot of times in vampire games that I've played, the prince is like the most powerful vampire in the city, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, like he can dominate anybody by glancing at them for five seconds. <laughs> but Kevin Jackson doesn't really do that kind of stuff. He's just really yeah, good, th- like as a as a you know yeah, personality I th- I force. That that speaks strongly to the the general idea behind V five, where elders aren't necessarily the individuals clinging onto power so much these these knights, because a lot of them are being beckoned, some of them are going into torpor, some of them have been destroyed. Kevin Jackson was only embraced within the last fifty years. And one would assume there are mm-hmm. other princes like him because all of those Methuselah princes, most of them are going away now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that means there's there are spaces for younger princes who aren't going to be getting where they are through raw blood potency or generation. They are getting there because they have the contacts, the allies, and all those other, other lovely backgrounds everyone knows about. Uh, and in that sort of meta plot, narrative we've got going on in v5 chicago we describe that by saying between the uh i guess interregnum where Loden had fallen the primogen ruled and when various members of the mm-hmm. primogen were disappearing off because of the beckoning joseph peterson a ventru in charge of chicago's media from a kindred side seizes praxis and mm. then last as prince for all of about a night before Mm. Kevin Jackson topples him with the support of the remaining Primogen and various other kindred because it becomes a situation of not, I guess, what you can do with your your fists and with your words, but the influence that you curry and the friends that you've got, whether in the open or behind closed doors. Um, Yeah, and and that's one thing I love about Kevin Jackson is that he blends that young vampire swagger with the gravitas of clan venture in a very compelling and interesting way and uh mm-hmm. should uh, give a shout out of course to chris, chris spivey who yeah. uh, who wrote kevin jackson uh for this edition uh, and um putting my hands up uh, when I initially spoke to Chris about writing Kevin, because uh, Kevin was going to be the prince all the way back from Beckett's Jihad Diary, the seeds are laid in there. You can find them if you go to, I think the the chapter is The Way of Three Eyes, uh, where it gets referenced who's vying for the praxis in Chicago. Um, I said to Chris, I'd really like a Stringer Bell type. Uh, I, I want Kevin Jackson to be like Stringer Bell and The Wire, because everyone loves The Wire. I think The Wire is fantastic. Stringer Bell's mm-hmm. a really compelling character. And Kevin Jackson, as portrayed in first and second edition, is his sort of purview as a Ventru is over street gangs. Why? Well, because he's black. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Um, and Chris would. <laughs> No, and, and Chris quite rightly <laughs> pointed out that there could, there should be more to this character than that. He should be more than just a gangster with a bit of know-how. And um, wrote up a lot of the material that, of course, you see in Chicago by Night that explains why Kevin becomes Prince, and that is he is so clever and so connected and so keen on elevating himself that he certainly has dark sides to him because he will elevate himself ahead of all others. Uh, mm. But 
his connections are to perfectly legitimate business and political interests and and youth groups and minority groups in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so while mm-hmm. he definitely still has the criminal aspects from his past, because I'm not really keen on retconning things completely from previous editions, it shows how someone might go from being the... Um, being, I guess, the hood on the street to becoming a, a white-collar criminal, if you like, uh, which is what all princes are in a lot of ways. Uh, they're just people who know how to manipulate the system from a position of, of power and influence rather than being at the bottom. Yeah, I mean, yeah, his character is based more now on that kind of archetype of the, you know, politician who gives to all the right charities and does all the right events but has you know dark undersides Mm. to what they're doing um so eddie who were your favorite characters in the book um uh, honestly they're i'm 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 a little biased because i wrote some of the bruja characters and i'm going to talk about them because i think they were fun to write but uh, i do want to give a shout out to uh rabbi basaris of volsombra um, because the Sombra mm-hmm. traditionally throughout the 20 plus years of Vampire the Masquerade positioned as vampires that have connections to religious institutions, but it's been almost always various forms of Catholicism or Christianity. Um, and so having a, a La Sombra of a different faith was, I think, a really cool inclusion to show that the Sombra are much more diverse spiritually than just Christianity, which I think is nice. I also like Sierra. Yeah. Sierra talks fun too. Just kids. Very, I mean, yeah. really, all the Lasombra are fun because they're Lasombra. <laughs> oh, no, no bias so. there. <laughs> uh, but, but, but going back Shush. to the retcon, um, um, it was interesting because one of the things when I talked to Matthew was he, he was on board with certain characters that were previously established as dead coming back. Um, and I always find that fun because it's a really good opportunity to really shake up a character in a way that you couldn't do otherwise. Um, uh, so one that didn't die was was Critias. And I remember uh, talking to Matthew the idea of... of having the blood bonds break and having him go, Oh, I've been manipulated for hundreds of years. <laughs> thousands. And, and thousands. Yeah. Yeah. It's for centuries, millennia. And, um, how that shapes the Burrow of Chicago pretty much, because a lot of how the Camarillo loyal Burrow were established in Chicago is based around that relationship. And now that's gone and he's angry about it. Um, that, that was a really fun thing to kind of dig into and, and, and how it impacts some of the other clanmates. Um, and also a chance to position Balthazar more explicitly as kind of the Bruja punching bag, in some cases literally. Um, like like uh, uh, Girard's, uh, another character we brought back, um, his relationship with Balthazar is just literally just, just fuck that guy. <laughs> That's like yeah. the entire relationship. Like, I hate him so much because he, he's, a, he's a terrible character. Yeah. And it was, it was uh, culturally a really good time because in the 90s, having a white supremacist character was still valid, but it wasn't seen as, as culturally resonant as it is now. So saying, no, seriously, this guy's an asshole, fuck this guy. And having you know, their other members of his clan go, but that asshole over there um, shows because also I think Clan Bruja works best when it's fighting internally as well as externally. It's usually yeah. that the sweet spot for Clan Bruja dynamics. Right. Um, and plus, I got to sneak in a Sherlock Holmes reference into Gerard, which makes me happy. Well, not sneak in. Matthew knew about it. 
It's right. not really snuck in there. It is it's explicit pretty explicitly. Like all reference. Yeah. Uh, whenever I hear about references being snuck into my books, I seethe. But no. It spells it out, and I did tell you ahead of time I was doing it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not an egregious one. Uh, uh, some One of those fun things about Balthazar is that I think technically he's among the Hellenes, uh, the Hellenes yes. being the Camarilla Bruja, simply mm. because the Anarch Bruja don't want him. Why would you want to hang around with a white supremacist ex-Confederate who calls himself Sheriff? Uh, there's, mm. there's, uh, and that's not <laughs> even going into his night-to-night actions. And so he's nominally Camarilla because he follows the traditions and because he's got age. But he's quickly finding out that if you don't... Um, adapt to the times then you're going to be left behind Uh, and one of the uh, I remember a criticism when we first released the manuscript for Chicago about us even having him in there Mm. and I put him at the same kind of level as a character like Sun from uh, Clan Malkavian we've actually got two characters called Sun but one is S-O-N, one is S-U-N and uh, Jason Newbery, Sun is a uh, homicidal maniac, quite frankly. Mm. He, he is a murderer, and he enjoys finding new and interesting ways to kill Kindred, and somehow has become the primogen for Clan Malkavian. He's, he's Dexter, in many ways, but without yeah. any of the charm of, of the actor. And he's like a Humanity 1 or Humanity 2 character. So pe- some people have said, well, for one thing, these characters shouldn't still be around, and two, how can you portray such horrible characters in your book? And I, that comes down to my feeling that not every single villain needs to be sympathetic. Uh, I, I think there's, there's a fallacy right. that the best villains are the sympathetic ones. But I think sometimes you do just need characters that you can... Uh, set on fire, stake, diablerize, or have as the foil to your coterie without feeling guilty about it. And, right. and in fact, being able to take enjoyment out of it. And uh, that may sound a bit sadistic, but the fact is some vampires are monsters and are just on the cusp of falling to the beast permanently. So this is what they look like before they become whites. Uh, just imagine how terrible they are going to become when the beast overtakes them utterly. Right. And the other thing that's helpful for having those kinds of villains is it gives character players, I should say, um, very simple, obvious goals when they're starting out. Yeah. Like if you're playing in a Camarilla city and you say, oh, hey, that Malkavian's really terrible and that Bruja's really terrible. We're going to take them out or we're going to get them out of their positions. Then you have a very clear starting goal because like, yeah, no, seriously, fuck that guy. Um, whereas if everyone's nuanced and complicated, it can be hard to figure out where to start and inject yourself in. But once you start taking out those obvious villains, then you're embedded in the politics and say, well, that character had alliance to this character. It's not here to tie to them. And now you're getting into the swim of things. So it's a nice entry point to what can be a very complicated political situation. Yeah. I actually seem to recall us having that conversation about who to include or not to include. Didn't you have like a big spreadsheet of all the characters, Matthew? Yeah, because we were like looking over it. And I think that at first I was anti putting Balthazar in it. And then I was like, well, we can put him in it if we explicitly say that you should probably kill him. (laughs) (laughs) Which is pretty much what happens. Because like... 
I mean, he's he's racist. He's, he's a racist Confederate asshole. Like he's there to be killed. Um, and then I think that I, I changed a little bit of language around uh, Jason Newbery, but not not much. Um, it was it was kind of funny. So I mean, I edited this a while back. Um, so I don't remember everything about it clearly, but there are certain characters that get mentioned that like. The minute that you said son, my brain was like, ugh. And I was like, why do I hate him? And then you said, he's an evil murderer. And I was like, oh, okay. So, like, something stuck with me that he was gross. But uh, the, the the reason why didn't stick with me. Uh, personally, I think his uh, art is a Ken Meyer Jr. piece. And I just like the fact that he has his collar buttoned all the way up to the top. I always find that an unsettling look. I'm sure plenty of people can carry it off and look perfectly <laughs> fine when doing it. But uh, but for me, if I don't have a tie on, I don't do my top button up. So Jason Newbury looks too polished. He looks too clean. You know, his, his shirts are pressed a little too well. Uh, with yeah. All right, all right uh, Patrick Bateman. So on the subject of uh, loathsome characters, let's talk about Clan La Sombra. Oh, that's uh, funny. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 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 uh, rude. So it would be rude. remiss to not mention that one of the biggest features of Chicago by Night is this is the introduction of the La Sombra to V5. Mm-hmm. And undoubtedly, when I made that decision, I had lots of things going through my mind. I, I wanted this book to be the best context for their introduction. I knew that it would potentially make more people purchase the book, quite frankly, because not everyone wants a city source book. But also, I wanted it to be a catalyst for a fantastic story that covered both clan politics and city politics. And so we've got the introduction of the La Sombra, or at least part of the clan, joining the Camarilla. And that idea, Vampire Trivia Time, was actually Ken Heights when we were working on the V5 core. We had a big meeting, we had many big meetings, uh, the people working on that book about which clans should change allegiances between the editions and in one of those meetings the discussion came up of where do the banu hakim go where do the ministry go or the setites as they were and where do the la sombra go and yeah the la sombra ken made this fantastic argument for why they would add a new shade to the camarilla that uh term I love to use of ecclesiastical horror because the Camarilla never really had the organized religion side to it in previous editions that was reserved for the Sabbat so you have the La Sombra moving over for various and sundry reasons that are explained in the book and we of course introduce a new bane for them a new curse for their clan it's so, so good. We received it's a, so good. Yeah, we received a fair amount of discontent, more more positive than negative, but some discontent regarding their bane. So, Dixie, why don't you explain what their bane is? Okay, so the Sabra Bane used to be the vampire mirror thing, right? And, you know, you, you can't, you don't have a reflection or it's distorted or whatever. Um, and then at some point that was expanded to mean like cameras too, because camera, like especially old school cameras, you know, work with mirrors. Um, in the digital age, that doesn't make much sense. So the La Sombra ban now is that they show up 
super like fuzzy or distorted on on cameras on audio recordings uh it's difficult for them to like speak on a phone like a like a cell phone or to text they have to actually like spend things to 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 do that um and you can fail you can fail at texting <laughs> um and you can you know fail at appearing normal on a camera or what have you and what i like about it is that to me, that just makes for so much tension and story hook that the mirror thing didn't. Like, honestly, at this point, like, not appearing on camera at all or not showing mirrors is kind of a good thing yeah. if you're trying to stay hidden. <laughs> like, that's not a bad thing at all. But showing up as a weird glitch that the Second Inquisition might, you know, notice is way more interesting, first of all. And secondly, there's that horror thing that we've talked about a little bit before where, like, once cell phones mm -hmm. happened, it became a big thing. Horror movies started having to rely on like mm -hmm. someone not having signal <laughs> or their phone battery dying <laughs> uh, to make any tension at all. Because you know, if you're hiding in a closet from a serial killer and you have your phone, you can just call nine one one, and it's it's not hard. Uh, Lasombra can't do that <laughs> easily. So if you send your you know friendly Lasombra from your coterie out to investigate apartment or whatever and someone comes home in the middle of it and they have to hide you know in a closet or under the bed or in a basement or whatever and they're trying to text their coterie it might just come yeah. through as scrambled garbage and hopefully your coterie <laughs> figures out what's going on and can right. track you using gps but maybe they can't and maybe you're stuck there and like i just think there's so much interesting possibility for that like i like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't play La Sombra Hacker, but it would be really funny to play La Sombra that was a hacker yeah, until they uh, got embraced two weeks ago. part of the attraction of playing vampire is to play someone with struggles. Uh, a Bane should be an active component of uh, the character, in my opinion. I completely respect people who disagree, mm -hmm. even though they are wrong. And <laughs> part, of the, uh, part of the fun, I think, of uh, having La Sombra have this Bane, much the same as the Ventry Bane has always been a great deal of fun, having a feeding restriction because it it generates interesting play is the way vampires get around right. their weakness in this case how the sombra get around their bane and in this case i think there's no better reason for a la sombra to have a permanent ghoul or, or small pack of retainers yep. an entourage yes. Constantly following them around it once again makes them feel like uh, like monarchs or bishops or keepers, as they are otherwise known, and uh, it it basically puts them in that same field as the Ventru and the Torridor. Except the reason the La Sombra gets someone to open the electronic doors for them, get someone to drive them around places, and when they want to make a phone call, they snap their fingers and they say, "Wallace, call this person," and that person and Wallace calls that person because the La Sombra can't do it themselves. But mm. to the mortal eye, it just looks like some jumped-up executive or faux aristocrat who is pushing their servants around. And I think that just fits in with the La Sombra dynamic of control that La Sombra yep. always have so well. Uh, so, yeah, I I'm a big fan of it. I think it, it works really nicely in Masquerade. Also, once I read it, like it made me want to play nothing so much as a brand new Lasombra that, like, is you know my age or younger, as of twenty twenty, who has had 
smartphones and things their whole life or or most of it and you know is used to using instagram and used to using twitter and he's using all these things and then their cell phone is just kind of useless and like you know they go through social media withdrawal right. <laughs> and then also like have to find new hobbies and new things to do and it's depressing and hard and you know there's just a lot of really interesting stories you could play with that um whether it's the you know older Lasombra who never really understood technology anyway, so whatever, um, or the very young one, like I mentioned earlier, if you had somebody who literally like was a computer hacker or you know spent all their time doing that kind of thing, and now they suddenly can't, that's that's an interesting personal story. <laughs> and I think it goes into the, the flavor of the clan because um, I know over the years when I was working on like V20, for example, um, a lot of people would ask him, really, what's the difference between the Ventru and Volsombra in a lot of ways? Because at a high level, tonally, they seem very similar. But I had always viewed Volsombra as inherently trying too hard. You know, it's like they always have to, they, they grip so hard on control that their fingers creak kind of moments. Um, and for the venture kind of just very easily just take control situations, but the Sombra scrap and fight for every amount of control and they will, by God, use every moment of it they can. And so this clan weakness really plays into that flavor because they have to, they have to have control because otherwise they're really out of the loop and real danger to everybody. I think uh, it may have yeah. been, and I may get the words mixed up a little, but I think Karim said to me the way he sees the La Sombra is the, and the Ventru dynamic is the Ventru want to lead, the La Sombra mm. want to win. Yeah. And, and that is essentially how they, I guess, comport themselves in, in Elysium. And it also explains some of their disciplines, the fact that the Ventru have presence and dominate. It is, as you say, Eddie, a bit of a softer touch. It's mm -hmm. the way that they convince people that what they're doing for the Ventru is exactly what they would want to do. Whereas the right. Sombra doesn't care for your feelings. <laughs> the Sombra is just going to tell you to do it. And if you don't do it, they will probably hit you very hard uh, either mentally or physically or you will be scared of going back to your bedroom at night because of what they can do with darkness um but also if they're hanging out with the cam now they might have to learn to respect feelings yeah, occasionally yeah, exactly. <laughs> i mean like i played a lot of la sombra anti-tribes just because i i like the la sombra i always thought that their disciplines were super cool and i liked their backgrounds um so i played la sombra anti-tribes a few times and like it is interesting playing that character because if you're playing an anti-tribe, you're you're pretty much playing a Lasombra that decided that, you know, the Lasombra and the Sabatwe wasn't really mm. for them. Um, so you're probably playing a slightly more sensitive version of the character, or a slightly nicer version, or a more politic version. You know, someone who's less likely to just be like, "Fuck this, yeah. fuck you." Um, but now that Clan Lasombra, and once again, this is an optional thing, by the way. I don't know if we mentioned that, but. We say in the book it's optional if Lissombra join your city or not. You play through the Chronicle and you decide if they are allowed to hang out with the cam mm -hmm. or not, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, so like now they're joining the cam. Like, are they going to change a little? Are they gonna you know get a little better at, at at the politicking and things like that? Get a little maybe nicer, or are they going to continue their old ways and you know hope that? Nobody decides to purge them. <laughs> See, I'm going to have to say is I used to play Alessandra in our uh, a Sabat LARP, and um, I would argue with lots of characters that potence basically solves all problems. 
It's like, <laughs> you want to adopt, you want someone to do something what you want to tell them to do? Just punch them. They'll, they'll do what you want. You know, uh, path of flame. I'll just throw a fireball at you and it get, solves the problem. So every discipline can be emulated by posts. So <laughs> why be uh, subtle? I remember, uh, I'm going to tell you about my character now. Um, <laughs> I played a, and it is a tangent, I played a Dark Ages uh, vampire game at one point and I was playing a La Sombra who was effectively Brian Blessed in a suit of armor. Uh, the second or third child of the local prince and mm -hmm. so one of the prince's barons was causing issues and uh, this baron was of course another vampire and uh, I never spoke to the other players about what my disciplines were I just never went into it and I had put all four dots because you got four dots in disciplines in dark ages in potence I just thought, mm -hmm. this character isn't someone who is going to mentally dominate, and he doesn't give a shit about obtenebration or oblivion as it is now. Right. And uh, he was just wandering around, waving his flail, being bombastic, and we finally reached the unhappy Baron's banquet hall, where he and his small militia had gathered, waiting for us in a trap. And it was at that point, and only at that point in the entire game, did I use all four dots of potence to drop kick my way all the way down the banquet table and just kick the Baron's head off. Uh, the the <laughs> role was that successful that he ju I just did a kind of Liu Kang in Mortal Kombat. Uh, <laughs> but but Brian Blessed just go what da across the table and <laughs> off went the big bad guy's head and. The chronicle ended shortly thereafter, um, but you know. Uh, so yeah, I, I have fun playing La Sombra, or indeed anyone with potence. Potence is a fun discipline to break out occasionally. See, it's funny because I almost never do like a, a, a potence La Sombra. I tend to be in a tenebration or oblivion La Sombra. Dark and mysterious. I just want shadow yeah. tentacles. Well, also, it's just fun to, like, stand in a corner and look kind of frail and, like, you can't do much and then wave your hand and shadow tentacles, yeah. you know, that crush someone. Oh, yeah. Like. I think in terms yeah. of clan aesthetics, that is part of why so many people are attracted to clan La Sombra. There is, and I certainly don't say this in any kind of derisive way, there is something attractive to being the clan that essentially wears black. It's like the man in black. It's the the, the black-hatted cowboy. Uh, the person who can be all wreathed in shadow and be dark and brooding and mysterious. I think lots of players enjoy that. And it is a perfectly valid concept in a game of vampire and many others. So... I mean, it's the it's 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 the gothic yeah. clan. Like, let's just yeah, be real they're, here. They're more the Hecata, <laughs> I would say. Um, although I would say they are probably the practicing goths, uh, the goths with with esoteric right. interests on the side. They say, hey, the the uh, the concert's over. Shall we hang around and drink, or shall we go and do some kind of prayer circle in the graveyard? The the drinkers of the La Sombra, the uh, Hecata, are the ritually rit yeah. ritualistic types. So they're the trying yeah. too hard. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> Until, yeah, and then they get a phone call at 2 a.m. from mummy and daddy because it's all in the family for the Hecata. And they say, where the hell are you? You're supposed to be back home by now. Right. And halfway through a satanic ritual, they've got to apologize to their friends and go home. Right. No, 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 dude. I'm wearing a soul <laughs> mask. It's cool, man. <laughs> what have your friends in Clan La Sombra been teaching you? Nothing. <laughs> And now we're back to uh, Vampire the Masquerade High School idea that we had before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they said I'd be more cool if I wore black. 
Um, so, uh, anything else we should just... Oh, uh, actually, there is one more thing. And I know we've shouted out to a few different writers, artists, and, and other members of the team. Um, but one part of the book that has received a lot of praise, and again, rightly so, is the Chronicle in the back, The Sacrifice, mm -hmm. which uh, Clara Herbal wrote, I developed. Karim also overdeveloped it, uh, not in a sense that, oh my god, look at how he's developed it, and he did additional mm -hmm. development. And uh, the reason this Chronicle is so worthy of note, other than the fact that it's well written, and it is the Chronicle that introduces the La Sombra to the Camarilla, so it's no small thing, is it is so difficult to write a good vampire story or chronicle that you can play. Yeah. Uh, they are so often linear to the extreme. Because vampire is primarily a social game, it's incredibly difficult to account for all possible outcomes, uh, given that vampires of different clans often have different objectives, and the customization of characters when you play a vampire is so varied, uh, you have really no way of knowing which way the players are going to go. But it's a scenario that is set up somewhere between being an A to B story of, of uh, ferry these very important La Sombra to Elysium and protect them and then make the decision as to whether the La Sombra become members of the Camarilla in Chicago. But it's also a toolbox of random encounters, uh, stories with different SPCs who are off to the side, uh, ways to pursue your own character's goals in Chicago. So it has a bit of everything. And for me, and it may be the first Vampire Chronicle I've ever read that does this, it just hits every beat. And I, I say this with all due respect, I think, because I love the Giovanni Chronicles to read it. I certainly didn't enjoy running it. And uh, Transylvania Chronicles, a similar thing. But this yeah. is the first game I've seen so many people running online and not one comment criticizing it. Yeah. I, I'm sure there are some out there that I've not seen, but I have not seen any. Just so many people saying this is really an excellent story. So uh, all respect to the creative team behind that little venture. Just so you know, that's not an invitation for you to send us no. your criticism <laughs> of the story. <laughs> like, we haven't seen any, and we're okay with that. <laughs> and if you want to, uh, you can find me on MatthewDawkins.com, where I will leave you unread and deleted. <laughs> I thought you were wrapping up the episode. I was like, that's a good segue. <laughs> well, it is about time that we wrap up the episode, I'm afraid, listeners. It has been a wonderful journey from here to there. And as we mentioned at the beginning, Chicago by Night is available pretty much everywhere that you can buy a book. But otherwise, do look on Indie Press Revolution, Studio 2, Drive-Thru RPG, your local gaming store, all of those. As Eddie pointed out early on, your local gaming store is the best place to order it from for us. But you do what is best for you as the customer. Absolutely. Uh, so, Dixie, if people want to find you online and talk to you about Chicago by Night, where would they go? 
<laughs> well, the first thing I'm going to do is plug, uh, we have our Hunter the Vigil Kickstarter running still for, uh, I think, six more days. So if anyone could go check that out, that would be awesome. We've already surpassed our goal by a whole bunch. Um, but, you know, every little bit helps, and we freaking love stretch goals. So go check out the Hunter the Vigil 2nd Edition Kickstarter. Um, you can find me at DixieCochran.com or DixieCyanide on most social media. And Eddie? Uh, you can find me at pugsteady.com. Uh, you can find from there my social media accounts. Um, I generally hang out on Twitter at pugsteady, P-U-G-S-T-E-D-D-Y, uh, portmanteau of pugsteady in my name. Um, uh, and also, if you want to check out uh, Pugmire coins, go to realmsofpugmire.com. And then you can find me on matthewdawkins.com and as clack, click, bang on Twitter. And just to echo what Dixie said, uh, about Hunt of the Vigil, something I said on Facebook is uh, we're getting through stretch goals like victims in a slasher movie, and this is the Slasher Chronicle. Uh, if you liked World of Darkness slashers for the new World of Darkness, back when it was called that, uh, they are in pride of place in Hunter's second edition. Uh, they are the primary antagonist. You've got lots of new... Uh, there's compacts, there's conspiracies, there's tactics, there's everything you love from first edition, except it's all updated to the second edition rule set, and there's so many new things to play with so please do check out hunter we're really proud of it and i think the team did a fantastic job uh, so not long left to back it but please give it a look with that said many worlds one path cast